Hello, my name is Garrett Coyne. I'm one of the integrated cardiothoracic surgery residents at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Uh, today, uh, we'll be interviewing Dr. Jose De Silva, who is the visiting professor of cardiothoracic surgery at the University of Pittsburgh, and he's the surgical director of the Center for Valve Therapy at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Uh, Dr. De Silva conducted much of his medical training in Brazil before coming to the United States to do a fellowship in cardiac surgery at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation. He then returned to Brazil where he developed and pioneered the cone technique for repair of Epstein's anomaly. And today we'll be discussing the approach to Epstein's anomaly and more specifically the application of the cone procedure. Dr. De Silva, thank you for joining us today. Okay, thanks for having me. So we'll start off with a case presentation. We have an 18-month-old female is referred to your clinic with a known diagnosis of Epstein's anomaly from prenatal assessment. She has had episodic cyanosis since birth, and this has worsened with crying and activity over the last several months. Additionally, during a recent visit to the cardiologist, she was noted to have supraventricular tachycardia with a questionable Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. How would you proceed with your evaluation and workup of this patient? Well, first of all, we, uh, we need to go to the basics, take an x-ray, do an EKG. The, post, uh, the most important diagnosis, too, is the echocardiogram. We do an echocardiogram, and that should show uh, well the anatomy of the valve. As you know, in Epstein anomaly, you have displacement of the septal and inferior leaflets. And the displacement has to be, of the septal leaflet, has to be greater than 8 millimeters per square meter body square, body surface. And so we start with that. Okay. And what are, what are some of the findings, just to remind us, on chest x-ray and EKG that might be pertinent? Well, we start with the EKG. Usually, you can see um, right the bundle branch block, so have a conduction defect. Also, it's very common in Epstein anomaly to have um, Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome associated, so you should see delta waves, the P, short PR interval, even though not always there, but sometimes also you have uh, uh, delayed conduction, so you have a uh, first-degree block, uh, AG conduction. So this is about the echocardiogram. Mm -hmm. About the the X-ray, you normally have a shape, uh, has a shape of an egg, mostly look like an egg, but you have dilation of the right atrium and the right ventricle. You have variable size of a heart. Sometimes you have a very big heart that goes from wall to wall. The index that you can calculate from there is the cardiothoracic ratio. So our patient has a cardiothoracic ratio of 0.65, has Wolf-Parkinson-White's on her EKG, as we already discussed, and some supraventricular tachycardia. And on her echocardiogram, she has a massively dilated right atrium uh, and right ventricle and a severe displacement of her uh, septal anterior leaflets. Is there any role, given those findings, of any additional testing? Yes. Well, in this case... As uh, they are telling me, she has arrhythmia. And WPW uh, have an uh, incidence of about 20%. Some centers they found even close to 40%. So it's very important in this case to do electrophysiological study. And it was done in this patient. And actually, some people think it's important to 
to start with a halter, and in most of the cases, in any doubt, to do a EP study. The other thing that you mentioned in these cases is that you have an index cardiovascular uh, ratio of 65%. Mm-hmm. That's correct. This per se has been an indication for for the repair, and the reason for that is that data per se is uh, predictive of higher mortality over time. But uh, this child had other indications that are classical too, that's, which is cyanosis and arrhythmia. So everything here goes toward uh, surgical treatment. But in her case, because she has arrhythmia, people need to study, do AP study, and also uh, do ablation because they'll find uh, uh, WPDR with different uh, connection, uh, AV conduction, abnormal AV conduction tissues, and those uh, should be treated. We discussed briefly uh, using MRI. When is an MRI useful to add to the workup? Well, when you have a skin case with small children, yeah, you don't do it because then you, you need to give anesthesia. And the information that you get from MRI, nowadays you can have a 3D echo that can give like the volume of the ventricle. But in some cases, you can elucidate the anatomy. In some patients, when you do like first chamber view, you don't see any tricus valve. You see just the atrialized RV in first chamber view. And those are usually the patients where you have the valve in the outflow tract of the right ventricle. And sometimes it's hard to, to elucidate that anatomy. When you do an MRI, then you can see uh, the leaflet in the outflow tract. Of course, you should do a TE echo. You also can elucidate that anatomy. But normally, you use the TE echo in the operating room. In this case, she underwent an electrophysiological study. They found an aberrant conduction pathway on the anterior wall of the atrium. They attempted ablation, but the ablation was failed in her case. So what does that mean for the operation going forward? It's very essential to, to take care of the arrhythmia. And in this case, we did ablation. Okay, so you briefly mentioned earlier a few of the indications for repair in Epstein's, namely uh, cyanosis, symptomatic arrhythmia. What, what are all of your indications for repair of Epstein's and what affects your decision on timing of the repair? I think nowadays we have a tendency to repair all Epstein anomaly cases which had, had um, an important uh, malformation of the heart with the severe displacement of the septum, posterior leaflets, and also sometimes we have lesion in the anterior leaflet as well. I, later on, I'm going to talk more about anatomy. So if we have that anatomical change that are important and also functional change, meaning a severe tricus regurgitation, this per se nowadays is an indication for, uh, for the repair, especially if you have uh, atrial uh, septal defect. But because before the cone technique, there's a tendency to be very conservative in the indication. So in the older time, you indicate uh, only you have severe dilation of the heart, especially the RV and right atrium. You have arrhythmias and you have cyanosis or you have uh, uh, symptoms of uh, heart uh, failure. So those will be the most important indication. 
and there was a tendency to delay the indication. But nowadays, uh, because everybody knows that if you if that happens, uh, the people uh, the patient can get worse and worse, and the risk of operation uh, also goes together with that. Uh, so there's a tendency to do it uh, earlier on, early. And uh, when there's a symptomatic patient, if they have any sign of dilation of the heart, there's a tendency to, to repair. When you have a significant ASD associated with the lesion, I think is another indication. But in any case, there's no special rule for an indication. But people tend to do, uh, in any case, that they have a significant uh, anatomic and functional lesion of the heart. Can you describe for us how the current classification mechanisms for Epstein's are, are utilized? First, we have for adult patient, we have the Carpentier technique. When he described his technique, he described also a class, the Carpentier classification. And that is based on the patient had that he could do the, his technique. So he said type A, B, C, D, being A uh, and B, the one that have a good, mobili- a good mobility for the anterior leaflet, and in A, the difference is the lateralized portion of the RG is small. And then the C, you have less mobilization, the anterior leaflet, and you have a large lateralized RV. And then finally the D, you have very little mobility of the anterior leaflet and all leaflets actually. So the valve is almost completely tethered to the RV wall. And usually you have just a little opening that is near the outflow tract of the right ventricle. So that is the classification for adults. And being the last one, the type D, very difficult to do. Now there's another type of classification that's most most useful in the neonatal period. And that was described by Seller Mayer, working at the Great Osmond Street. Uh, hospital, and he classified in one, two, three, and four. And the way he classified is by doing a um, four-chamber view echocardiogram, and then he will he would calculate the area of uh, the right atrium and add it to the area of the lateralized RV, and that he would divide it by the rest of the area, meaning by the area of the left atrium, the left ventricle and functional right ventricle. Grade one would be the patient who had um, that score of uh, point less than 0.5. And then uh, from 0.5 to 1 would be type uh, 2, the grade 2 or score 2. And then type uh, 3 would be from 1 to 1.5. And type 4 or grade 4 would be from one and a half and above. And importantly, when you have a, a higher score, uh, it will be associated with a higher risk of death. And his experience, and to have above a 1.5 score um, of relationship between the areas, and so it will be type four, they have 100% mortality rate his experience. So I say, if you have three, you still have a very high mortality rate. 
And the other hand, if the score is like 0.5, so we score one, almost all those patients go home without any intervention in the neonatal period. So you, were, you alluded to a bit ago the history of the surgical procedures uh, themselves, and there have been several both repair and replacement techniques. Uh, could you discuss briefly kind of where we've come from in Epstein's and what, how you developed your technique based off, okay. of, based off of that history? Well, when I started working on the repair of Epstein, only was at the Cleveland Clinic, and they had adopted the technique of Denison. Denison technique, he didn't do much about the valve tissue. to leave it the way it was and would repair the atrialized right ventricle uh, with a transverse plication. So with this, you put together both the uh, annulus of the tricuspid valve, the displaced and, and the AV junction, which would be the true tricuspid annulus. And with this, it, it did some improvement in the tricuspid valve. And then he would complete that procedure by plicating the annulus, the tricuspid annulus, so make it a little smaller. So that is so-called um, monocus repair. So the anterior, basically the anterior leaflet would close against the ventricular set. And that repair was good for some patients, like 40% of the patients do very well with that repair, but could not resolve um, in many cases. So in about 60 to 65% of the patients, they would re, uh, replace the tricus valve. Next to that, I think, came the technique by Carpentier. Carpentier would mobilize the anterior and inferior leaflet of the tricuspid valve uh, together in a single leaflet, I would say. And then he would do a vertical plication of the atrialized right ventricle, and then he will he would reposition the valve, reattach the valve at the normal AV junction. So. With that technique, you do it in about 90% of the cases. But the problem is, as when he use it in a young population, children, uh, as the children, as the child grow, the distance can change between the septum and the anterior leaflet, and the incidence of regurgitation uh, was very important. Uh, so having uh, these were the major technique that they use in the United States or Europe, more or less at the same time as Carpentier, to work on a technique that could be applied to all anatomical types of Epstein anomaly. And, and that consisted of the mobilization of the leaflets from the tricus wall of the abnormal leaflets, and then uh, reconstruct them in a calm format. After that, do the application, similar to Carpentier application, vertical application, like it, the annulus, and many uh, times uh, in multiples, uh, part of the tricuspid annulus, and then uh, reattach the valve in the right and the correct place and through uh, atrial ventricular junction. So with this, I would have a valve that would cover all the annulus uh, and it would close, uh, close by leaflet to leaflet captation instead of leaflet to septum, uh, septum coaptation. With this, we had a central uh, flow, and as the RVs uh, contract, it would squeeze that cone and uh, would close, not allow the precast regurgitation. 
Thank you for that description of the history. So the key to your, your development was ensuring that you were able to use all the tissues. And to do that, you, you have to do a very, very deliberate dissection right. to delaminate the valve. Yeah. That's the key difference. Right. And that evolved to a very extensive dissection. So nowadays, if you don't have a competent valve, normally you didn't dissect enough. You didn't mobilize enough the, the leaflet tissues. Sometimes the mobilization is so, so great that you, you have some prolapse of the proximal part of the leaflet. But it's very important to have a good computation inside. And, and that's what makes uh, the difference as far as getting a competent valve. So I want to go through the whole operation, kind of start to finish, you know, just a reminder for our case, we, we have severe tricuspid regurgitation, moderate to severe RV dilation dysfunction, RA, RA dilation, a VSD, and an aberrant conduction pathway that had failed mm -hmm. treatment right. with, with, uh, with uh, ablation. So we kind of got to fix everything here. So if you could take us through sternotomy all the way to closure of this case. Okay, so we do a sternotomy, of course. It has to be, cannot be too small. Uh, and then we do direct cannulation, cable cannulation, and they send the aorta cannulation, of course. Then uh, we use, uh, we cool, and we use cardioplegia, integrate cardioplegia. So after we cross clamp with cardioplegia, we open widely the, the atrium, the right atrium. We make like an oblique incision and going from, from the right atrial appendage toward the inferior cava. So we, we expose very well the valve. To complete the exposure, we put some sutures, uh, stay sutures, at the annulus and, and retract the annulus up and keep it in a position that will be constant. So that will help you to have a 3D vision what would be the valve. So how much you have to bring the tissues. So after we do that, we put a vent through the ESD normally and then we start taking down the leaflet. We start by making incision about 12 o'clock at the hinge line between the anterior leaflet and, and, and the annulus. Then we go clockwise, taking down anterior leaflet, entering the part that it's displaced. And then we reach the posterior or inferior leaflet, and then we, we take down all. We make sure that we cut up the abnormal connection between the leaflet and the right uh, ventricle wall. So we finish that sometime we have to go very far, we have to go way down, especially in the case that you don't have normal papillary muscles. Some cases you have just a direct or a linear attachment of the distal part of the leaflet. So you have to blow very near that part. And in those cases, you complete, after the dissection, you complete that work by doing a vertical fenestration uh, distally. Well, after you finish that part, then you go to the other side. You go to the anteroseptal commissure. Then we start in that septal part, the anterior leaflet near the septum, let's say and make incision there. If you're not sure where is, is the, the hinge line, you put the instrument behind the leaflet and you find the hinge line. Then you make incision there and then you go counterclockwise 
and uh, toward the septal leaflet. And you have to mobilize, like the medial uh, papillary muscle is, that, is in that area. You have to mobilize it well. And, and if you have any connection that goes to the outflow tract, you have to, to, to cut. So you, you make that area very free too. So you have to imagine that you have to bring it to the middle and you have to make a comb by connecting and the septal leaflet to the posterior leaflet or inferior leaflet. So uh, then you, you go on and, and you go, uh, you keep on doing the dissection counterclockwise until uh, you finish uh, dissecting the septal leaflet. Sometimes you don't have much septal leaflet. Most of the time you have some, and that is very helpful to complete the cone. So you have enough tissues, and also you have support on the septal leaflet. And it's very often we have uh, we take the posterior leaflet without without any uh, support, without it's just the leaflet, and, and we leave there the, the subvalvular apparatus. So the septal leaflet will become the subvalvular apparatus for the posterior leaflet. So it's very important to combine both leaflets to have a good uh, link between uh, the distal attachment and what will be the proximal attachment of the trichus valve. So having finished that dissect, dissection, then you you put together normally the posterior with the septal, uh, just mentioned, and usually you do one, two, or three uh, vertical uh, sutures to get uh, the cone. And you try to have a cone without any proximal uh, holes, just distal openings. And so it will be a competent cone at the end. And after you are done with that, then you placate the right ventricle. And a vertical placation normally you do with two layers, two superficial layers, so you don't compromise the circulation, uh, the, blood, the blood supply for that area that exclude. In case of very thin area, especially when you have arrhythmia, you have to exclude it, either by suturing or resecting, or by uh, doing ablation. Cryoablation is very good for that, because then you, you don't compromise the, the circulation there. Then you go, um, you, you go to the annulus and do placation. If the annulus is too big, then it's important to do uh, two or three placation. Uh, I start doing anterior and the anterior, then you go to the posterior septal area of the annulus, and then the anterior septal area of the annulus. So with this, you get a good reduction in the size of the annulus, and you don't cause... Uh, kinking of the right coronary artery. Uh, at the beginning, I was trying to placate the one area, which would be in the inferior septal area of the, the annulus. Uh, you have the coron right coronary artery nearby, nearby, and you can kink it by placating there. Very often, I had to go and, and to dissect the, RV, the right coronary artery uh, to make it uh, undo the kinking. All right, so after you're done with this, then you, you, you reattach the base of that cone to the, to the annulus, the true annulus. And at that time, you have to be careful about the conduction system. The conduction system in Epstein normally, normally is a little bit uh, more to, to the lateral part of the, the septum as compared with the normal anatomy. 
Anatomy, the normal anatomy, the, the AV node is uh, at the angle between the, near the angle between the annulus and the todaro ligament. Uh, while in Epstein normally is a little bit more lateral, I mean, uh, a little more um, lateral to that angle. And you have to be careful. Normally, you see a vein, a little vein there, but that gives some orientation about the, the conduction system. So in that area, you have to be very superficial. Sometimes you have enough tissue involved, so you cannot reattach it to the todaro ligament. And then you go laterally, and then you go over uh, the coronary sinus. So you get to the base of the coronary sinus. Sometimes you make the coronary sinus a little bit stenotic. Then you open, you have to open the tebesial valve. Then you make it enlarging it again. So this is an interesting maneuver to prevent heart block. If you do it well, you rarely have a heart block due to the coronary. After that, we test the valve. It is very important to mention that at the beginning of the operation, before going to the pump or right after going to the pump, it's, going, it's nice to go going around the pulmonary artery. Uh, in, so you put a tourniquet there. And in order to test the valve, you put the tourniquet down so it would be easier to test the valve. You test with less saline, and also you prevent some uh, blood from coming in retrograde in the pulmonary artery across the pulmonary valve, mm -hmm. and that makes the operation a little easier to do. Too. So you are done with the tricus valve, then you go to treat the ESD. The ESD has to be uh, treated um, normally. I do um, a valve closure, that meaning that I put a single stitch in the primal septum and pull it under the edge of uh, the secondo septum and make it uh, competent again, make the, you know, the PFO competent again and a little smaller too. And other time you have to put a patch and then uh, you have many techniques to, to leave a little bit uh, residual uh, ASD. So our patient, you took us through a successful comb procedure now they go to the ICU. Tell us a little bit about what the post, immediate post-operative care of these patients look like. What, are they on inotropes? Uh, how do you how do you manage them after the operation? After the operation, I think if you have some degree of heart failure, this is very common. I'll say that probably around 50% of the patients are operated uh, will develop some degree of right ventricular failure, and some of them will develop a very important. Uh, RV failure. And this is part of the Epstein problem because it's not a disease only of the tricus valve, but it's also a disease of the right ventricular myocardium. And uh, so you have to use the maneuvers to decrease the pulmonary vascular resistance. So you, and also uh, the ventilation too. You, you have to think about uh, to do the ventilation like you do in Fontan patients. So you can not use high peak. Normally, you don't use a high uh, frequency. So you keep the pressure, the intratracheal pressure, the mean low, like 8, 10. So uh, normally, we don't use much of uh, peep in those cases. That's one thing. And then we have, we use Murinon, be, I think one of the basic drugs that we have to use in order to increase the pulmonary vascular resistance. I think we can use other maneuvers too, but basically that's the main thing. 
and and also uh, epinephrine. I think would be a good drug to use too. Then, uh, if the patient is not doing well, the CVP is high, you can you know give volume in order to increase the cardiac output up to CVP of about 12 millimeters of mercury. And nitrous oxide would be a good thing to use too. And and in some patients, you can all leave the chest open, especially in the small. Um, so those are the basic things that you use to get well uh, post-operative course. But one thing that I want to call attention is that when you have, you know, clear right ventricular uh, function and the patient's not doing well and the low cardiac output, you have to call ECMO very quickly, especially the older patients. And the reason for them, for that, is they are the limit. Sometimes the liver is already have been congested for a long time, and you associate the congestion to low cardiac output, you can lose it uh, very quickly, and then you can go to irreversible shock. So I think it's very important to uh, to offer assistance for those patients immediately if they have uh, uh, low cardiac output. Good. So our, our patient came out on, on melanone and a little bit of epinephrine, was weaned off over several days. We try to get these, these, these patients eating pretty quickly. And... It depends. If they're heart failure, you can hold on the eating for a few days. You have to have a good cardiac output, especially in the small patients. You have to uh, try to feed with slowly and see how they do, if they accept well. And uh, as you said, you, you have to wean them from the inotropic drugs, especially murinone, over time. Sometimes we keep them a week with, with murinone. Then you do daily echocardiogram, and when they get better, sometimes they don't oxygenate very well because they leave uh, the SD and they are shunting much. And then all of a sudden they start improving, and then the O2 saturation starts going up. That's a good sign. And then the shunt, meaning the shunt is smaller, get smaller. And that's a very good indirect sign that the energy function is getting better. And then you, you stop the dinotrop support at that point. I think one thing that is very important to, is to keep those patients coagulated during the postoperative care, especially if they have low cardiac output or high feeling pressure meaning right ventricular dysfunction, because they can form clots, they can embolize for the lungs, and even they can do paradoxal uh, embolization. That's why some people prefer to, to close the SD. But my, my whole career, especially because I didn't have at the beginning uh, assistance, I got used to, to leave some opening there. But because I do in the, in the valvet fashion, once the RV gets better, the ASD closed by itself. So it's very uncommon to have an ASD open and good RV function after a year, for example. Tell us a little bit about the long-term outcomes of this procedure. Um, what do you look for long-term? What have you found long-term for the cone yes. procedure, the results? One thing that I learned at the beginning, because I used to work with older patients, patients that were in desperate situation, that when they are older and that dysfunction of the RV, very few of them will return to normal uh, RV function. And so many of them have like uh, ventricular um, arrhythmia. And those, I think, are serious issues. 
That's why when I said in the beginning that you should do the, the repair uh, sooner than later. Normally you can do, I mean, routinely after between like three, seven years of age. But at any time if the heart is uh, showing signs of enlargement or arrhythmia or the other issue that I have. I did a, a study that has not been published yet in my patient when I got the number 200. And that shows that when I did the younger than 12, but excluding the newborn, the mortality rate was zero in the hospital. And afterwards, I lost only one patient that had an accident in him. She died of non-cardiac cause. And the other group that consists of patients with age 12 and older, uh, they had a different type of progresses over time. And, uh, and the difference in the survival curve are very different, are very important, very decisive. And the mortality was higher in the beginning, and also the number of patients that never recover RV infection. Well, uh, but in any case, some patients uh, that are younger too, they don't recover their infection completely, uh, at least in the follow-up I have done. But this, I think, will be like 30% of them. Uh, but if you, but they live very well. Uh, it's very hard to understand. And I think uh, part of the reason for that is that normally, Epstein normally patient has, has very low uh, pulmonary vascular resistance. So they survive well with a good uh, uh, with a dysfunction of the RV. If you have a good function of the valve, like as well, and no arrhythmia. So and that's why it's so important to treat the arrhythmia. Very good. Thank you for discussing Epstein's and the cone repair with us today, Dr. De Silva. And uh, thank you, everyone out there in the TSRA world, for joining us.